Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt. I'd like to um, do a shout-out to Vernon Reed in the back there, who's a member of our board of trustees. So say hi to Vernon. Um, It's always a pleasure to welcome Leonard Pitts uh, to the Pratt Library. He's been here a couple of times before. And I always look forward to any new book that Leonard writes. Um, and this new one, Grant Park, and you see uh, the cover here, um, did not disappoint. In fact, it was so compelling that I read it in a couple of sittings over the weekend, sometimes in the middle of the night. Uh, Grant Park is a fast-paced thriller. It's a real page-turner, and it has a cast of well-drawn characters. It explores race relations and racism in the United States, and it, and it covers the past 40 years. Um, and it explores the, um, these topics through the interconnected stories of two Chicago journalists, one white and one black. In Publishers Weekly, the reviewer wrote, and I quote, the sharply etched characters, careful attention to detail, and rich newspaper lore propel Pitts's socially relevant novel, end quote. Leonard Pitts is a Pulitzer Prize winner, um, and you read his, I know a lot of you read his column twice a week in the Baltimore Sun. Uh, he's actually a columnist for the Miami, Miami Herald, but his column is syndicated throughout the country. He is the author of, um, of the novels Freeman, and Before I Forget... He's written a memoir called Becoming Dad, and also there's also out is a collection of his columns. Leonard Pitts, welcome to the Pratt Library. Thank you you very much, Judy Cooper. Thank you, everybody. Good afternoon. Good evening, I guess I should say. Good evening, I guess I should say. There we go. It is always a pleasure to uh, to come out to the Pratt. Um, I am going to spend just a few minutes talking about uh, uh, this novel and uh, sort of setting up the reading I'm going to do for you. I'm going to do kind of a longish reading, probably 10 or 15 minutes or or thereabouts, uh, and then uh, hope to entertain some questions from you and then sign some books. Um, You know, sometimes as a writer, you write something and then you have to wait and let readers tell you what it is that you've written. Because having written this book and having had people uh, to, uh, to, to read it and review it, I find that I've written a taut political thriller, which was not what I set out to do. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad I did. You know, I've got no problem with taut political thrillers. But what I set out to do was to write about, uh, was to write about race and disillusionment. And I think, you know, that, you know, is, is a big part of, of, of what the book is. This is a book about two men and 40 years. This is a book about... Uh, the feeling that was general in, in this country in the 1960s, late 1960s, that race was something that we were going to, that we, we had finally confronted and that we were going to fix and that we were going to overcome. And we had a civil rights bill and we had a, a voting rights act and we had all of these things and we had a, we had a feeling that, okay, we're finally confronting our, our oldest and our deepest stain and we're going to get it fixed. And uh, 40 years later, uh, f- almost 50 years now, uh, there's a sense that, you know, perhaps we celebrated a little bit too soon, that perhaps we were naive to believe that having done these things, we could now take our eyes off the ball and everything would be hunky and or dory 
uh, for the remainder of American existence. And we have been finding out very painfully and very viscerally here in Baltimore, in Ferguson, in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, in Charleston, uh, in in Charleston, North Carolina, rather, um, uh, and elsewhere in the country. Um, Did I just misplace Charleston? South Carolina, thank you. In Charleston, South Carolina, and elsewhere in the country, you know how how misplaced our idealism was. So the two characters in this book, uh, and the people around whom this book revolves, are Malcolm Toussaint and Bob Carson. Malcolm, in 1968, is a very bright kid uh, who has just been asked to leave college. He had a full ride to a prestigious school. He's a black kid from Memphis, and he's just been asked to leave school because rather than go to class on his full ride scholarship, he would rather write protest graffiti on the side of the administration office uh, building. Uh, And his graffiti isn't particularly polite, let us just say. Uh, And so he's returned home to Memphis, uh, you know, really kind of fed up. Uh, with uh, you know, with America, he's 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 like a lot of I think young men in that era. Uh, he wants his freedom and he wants it now. He has no time or patience for linking arms and singing "We Shall Overcome" and marching you know down the street and holding signs and protesting and all those other things. Malcolm wants to break. Malcolm wants to burn. Malcolm wants to to destroy until people listen to him. And uh, in in that spirit, uh, he is one of the people who um, who. Attend, who uh, wrecks essentially what turned out to be Martin Luther King's last march. Dr. King was in Memphis to, uh, to speak on behalf of striking sanitation workers, most of whom were African-American. And that last march that he, out, that he ever um, participated in dis- disintegrated into a riot. And in my novel, in my fiction, Malcolm is one of the main authors of that, of that violence. Malcolm breaks a window and is part of the, the violence that disrupts the march. And that has some tragic and unforeseen circum, uh, uh, consequences for him. But at the end of that long day, he's gone to his night job. He works a graveyard shift at the, um, at the Holiday Inn. And he goes out back of the Holiday Inn and he encounters this guy uh, uh, having a cigarette and, and having a drink. And this guy turns out to be Martin Luther King. And they have this discussion, and this discussion changes Malcolm's life and makes him, you know, uh, makes him think that maybe I've been wrong, maybe I need to uh, reinvestigate this whole idea of nonviolent engagement, uh, nonviolent protest. Maybe there's a better way to do it than the way that I've tried to do it today. Uh, and for 40 years, this is what he does. He grows up. He becomes a, a celebrated uh, columnist. He wins two Pulitzer Prizes. So, he's, you know, it's not me because I've only got one. He wins two Pulitzer Prizes, and, you know, he's this really celebrated guy. Uh, but what he sees over the course of his 40 years is that things don't seem to be getting any better. Things seem to be getting, you know, if not stagnant, things seem to be getting worse. And it all comes to a head for him when he writes a column about, you know, one more police shooting of one more unarmed African-American man. And he gets one more racist email from one more, you know, reader who is, you know, in the extreme, a little bit nuts. Uh, and, you know, rather than do what a lot of us as columnists do, you sort of round file it, you figure this is why the delete button was invented. Malcolm decides to respond to this, and he writes a very angry, very incendiary, very over-the-top column. And he takes it to his editors and says, here, publish this. And the editor says, No. And he takes it to the editor above that guy and says, here, I want you to publish this. And the editor says, not going to happen. He goes all the way up to the publisher, whose uh, response is, this will run in my paper the day after Sarah Palin weds Jeremiah Wright on a nude beach in Jamaica. <laughs> in other words, not going to happen. So Malcolm goes out. Uh, he, you know, He goes to a bar to pout. He has a few drinks. And he has one of those ideas that seems like a really good idea when you've had a few drinks. What the heck? You know, I'll go into the uh, office after everybody has left, but before the presses have run. 
I know my boss's uh, uh, password to his computer. I'll publish the darn thing myself. And, you know, since, I'm, since, since he's, you know, I'm going to do it anyway, I'm going to torpedo my career anyway, I'll just put it on the front page. So he publishes this column on the front page of the, uh, of the paper. And then Malcolm disappears. No one knows what's happened to him except, of course, you, the reader. But Malcolm has been kidnapped by Clarence Pym and Dwayne McLarty. And these are two, they, they call themselves the White Resistance Army. Now, mind you, they call themselves an army, but there's only two of them. Um, you know, but uh, it's, <laughs> you like that, huh? But it's, uh, it's, um, it's Sergeant, uh, it's Sergeant uh, Clarence Pym and, and Captain Dwayne McLarty. That's how they refer to each other. And they, they are absurd, but they are dangerous. And they have this plot. They want to blow up uh, uh, Malcolm and, uh, and uh, President-elect Obama that night, election night, in Grant Park. So he spends a good part of the book as a hostage of these two gentlemen. Uh, the other character is Bob Carson, as I said. In 1968, Bob is this really idealistic, fundamentally decent, um, middle-class white kid from Minneapolis, a dentist's son, who is accepted to all sorts of prestigious schools but chooses to go to a school in the South that nobody ever heard of, a Bible college, because he wants to be in the South where, quote-unquote, it's all at. OK, his parents don't want him down there for the same reason. That's where, you know, that's where people are getting blown up and, you know, dogs and hoses and all that. We, we don't want you down there. But Bob is this kid who has dreamt of uh, he's, a, he's a Christian kid. and He's dreamt of you know, being put to the test. Do I have what it takes to put my body on the line for freedom as, you know, all of these other people who followed Dr. King have done? He feels that, you know, he's, he's a kid who's dreamt of marching with Martin Luther King like other kids dreamt of, uh, of playing catch with Mickey Mantle or of uh, being Mercury 7 astronauts. So he goes down to the school in, uh, in the South, and he falls in not just with, um, with a group of social activists, but with this one young woman in particular, this African-American girl named Janika Lattimore. And Janika just, Bob's mind just, you know, is just blown. She is the incandescent Janika Lattimore, as he puts it. And he has never seen anything like her in his life. He is madly head over heels, you know, frontward, backward, totally, completely in love with her. Uh, And they have this passionate, you know, relationship for a while. But then uh, they go to the march in in Memphis, uh, which, as I've mentioned a moment ago, ends up in violence. And Bob is one of the victims of that violence because he finds himself attacked by this uh, by this black guy at the riot for no other reason than that he's white and he happens to be there. And it's you know that's what you do at a riot. You, you know you, you beat people up. You know so he's found this. You know he's, he's getting beat up by this guy and Janika saves his life. But later that same day, for reasons that you'll hear in the excerpt that I'm about to read, Janika dumps him. Okay, so 40 years later we meet Bob and Bob has. Um, issues where where African Americans and civil rights are concerned. One, there's a sense of what I call compassion fatigue. Okay? Look, I I was willing to put my life on the line and my body on the line when there were when there were clear cut signs that said whites only. You know, I could see that viscerally that was wrong and I was willing to fight for that. But what is this you're talking about now about structural racism? And affirmative action, isn't that unfair to guys like me? And, you know, and on and, you know, on and on, police, police brutality. Well, you know, if you would stop committing all the crimes, you know, then police wouldn't have to do these things to you. Bob has come, become that kind of guy. He doesn't really like this in himself, but he's become that kind of guy. And part of it is getting older and, as I said, compassion fatigue. The other part is he has never gotten over Janika Lattimore. So part of it is, you know, part of it is personal. You know, this girl broke my heart. 
Okay, this girl dumped me and broke my heart. So uh, 40 years, you know, uh, later, Bob is sort of settled in this middle, you know, middle manager at a middle uh, level newspaper as an editor. And he gets a call one morning as he's puttering around his, qu- his kitchen, assembling um, a, a, an omelet. That uh, that column that his superstar columnist um, offered him yesterday, the one that he rejected emphatically, is now on the front page of the paper. Bob, do you know anything about this? Bob, the publisher is not in a good mood, and she wants to see you at 7 a.m. As most of you who've worked in an office know, if you called in by the boss at 7 a.m., not going to be good news. So, you know, this is where we find Bob. I'm going to read you this excerpt uh, now of Bob having just gotten off the telephone with his editor and finding out that the column is in the paper and that uh, his day is about to go to hell. Okay. Time was, of, time was short, but Bob didn't go flying to his bedroom to get dressed. Instead, he picked up the paper and, almost as if in a trance, began to read Malcolm's column, the column he, Bob, had rejected emphatically and then personally spiked to the delete basket the one that had somehow risen from the dead. It said, Good morning, friends and neighbors. What you read here today are the musings of a tired man. Tired from what, you will ask yourselves. What can Toussaint have to be tired about? He is a respected journalist. He has paid more than he deserves. He has two of the greatest kids in the world, and he was lucky enough to be loved by a woman who was gracious and kind and smart and stunning and who stayed married to Toussaint for 27 years until her death in 2006, despite the fact that he was none of those things and everyone knew she was far too good for him. What in the world does Toussaint have to complain about? Well, it's simple, really. I'm sick and tired of white folks' bullshit. I know the language catches some of you by surprise, but there you go. Two weeks ago, I wrote a column. You may remember it. It was about Dante Stoddard, the 23-year-old, 22-year-old African-American man, father of three, who died in a hail of bullets. 52 shots were fired. 27 struck home when he was confronted by Chicago police late one night outside a McDonald's restaurant. Police say they shot Stoddard because he reached into his pocket and produced a wallet that officers mistook for a gun. Witnesses said that was a lie. Security camera footage backs them up. It clearly shows Stoddard with takeout bags of fast food in each hand. He transfers them both to one hand and begins reaching toward his hip pocket to produce his ID. But before his hand even reaches the pocket, much less pulls anything out, the shooting begins and continues for 12 excruciating seconds. After all that, police said the man they were looking for when they stopped Stoddard on suspicion of armed robbery actually bore no resemblance to him. Ten years older, 50 pounds heavier, and with a medium afro where Stoddard wore dreadlocks. The only thing they had in common is that they were both black men. Apparently that was enough. In the column, I call the cops out for the execution of yet another black man under dubious circumstances and demanded a Justice Department investigation. In response, I just received the following email from a man named Joe McPherson, which I present to you now in its entirety. Toussaint, you're so stupid. You have to get the picture. Yours is Y-O-U-R. Okay. Toussaint, you're so stupid. Do you really expect us to shed tears because this guy is dead? You're just another whiny, brainwashed lib who doesn't have the brains to see the truth or the balls to tell it. Fact. Niggers commit the majority of the crimes in this country, so don't blame the police for this man being dead. Blame yourselves. If you really want to help your people, why don't you tell them to stop committing all the crimes? This guy Stoddard had a record for drug dealing and domestic violence. I noticed you didn't write about that. Or you could tell them to stop making babies they can't take care of. Stoddard had three kids with three different women, and he was only 22. That's something else you didn't say. 
No, you always want to put everything on white people. Your hatred of white America shines through with everything you write. You're such a racist nigger. Always playing the race card. Always stirring the pot. It's race baiters like you who are destroying this country, and it's people like me who won't let you. This is America, pal. Love it or leave it. Now, I don't present this email to you because it is particularly outlandish. It's a rare day when I don't get a half dozen or more just like it or worse. Nor I present it to you because it represents the final drop of water that makes the bucket overflow. I repeat, I am tired of white folks' bullshit. In the first place, and I realize this is petty, but this is my rant, so humor me, does this email not tell you everything you need to know about declining educational standards in this country? Can you appreciate how truly frustrating it is for an educated man such as myself to have his intelligence impugned by someone who failed to master fifth grade English? You're so stupid? Really? That may be the single most maddening sentence I have ever read in my life. Although you're such a racist nigger would also have to be in contention. And would someone please buy this man a box of apostrophes? (laughs) As for the rest of it, well, I don't propose to go through through it point by point. I've already said what I had to say about the execution of Dante Stoddard and for that matter about black crime, black babies, and the criminalization of black existence. You may look it up if you care to. I didn't write this column to say any of that. I wrote it only to say I give up. I surrender. Uncle. As many of you know, I once met a great man. His name was Martin Luther King Jr., who counseled me to have patience and faith where the people he called our white brothers are concerned. I was a young man with a young man's impatience and rage. My father was a Memphis sanitation worker, one of the men Dr. King had come to town to help, one of the men who paraded through downtown every day with a sign that said, I am a man because white folks needed the reminder. I didn't want to march. I wanted to burn. I wanted to destroy. I wanted to tear down the world until everybody in it felt my impotent fury. Dr. King told me not to waste my life that way. Patience and faith, he said. Well, here we are 40 years later, friends and neighbors, and I'm out of patience, and I am out of faith. I don't want to burn or destroy or tear down. I just want to surrender, to publicly divest myself of the foolish notion that white people can be redeemed, that they can be influenced to once and for all give up the asinine delusion that melanin correlates to intelligence, morality, or worth. I no longer believe they can. And yes, someone will point out that 40 years after Dr. King spoke to me, here we are with a black man running for president. What about that, they will say. Doesn't that prove patience and faith have paid off? Well, what about that? Barack Obama has faced not just the ordinary political questions about his policies, his plans, and his experience, but also a series of extraordinary questions unique to him. Was he really born in the USA? Is he secretly a Muslim? Is he secretly a terrorist? Does he hate Whitey? White people ask these questions because they can't bring themselves to ask what they really want to ask. Who is this nigger to think he should be our president? And when Obama gets his ass kicked and he makes that call tonight to congratulate John McCain on winning the presidency, when the social scientists start talking about the Bradley effect and the hidden racism polling did not uh, detect, ask yourself, could it really have ended otherwise? Could white people have done anything other than what they did? If you think that, then you don't know white people. I do. That's why I have given up on them. So, Joe McPherson, thank you for being that one drop and for thereby helping me to clarify something I've been struggling with for a very long time. Now, please go to hell and take America with you. Bob sighed. (laughs) He sat looking for a moment at the paper, Malcolm smiling a smug little smile and looking younger than he was in a SIG photo that was probably 10 years out of date. 
Finally, Bob stood and went about replacing the bags in the refrigerator, putting the skillet in the sink. There would be no breakfast this morning. As Bob was absorbing that minor disappointment, his telephone chirped again, this time the tone alerting him to the arrival of an email. Bob resented the slightly Pavlovian way the little device had trained him to pick it up at the ringing of a bell to see an ad for for erectile dysfunction or plea for, for help from a distressed Nigerian. For a brief moment, he thought of allowing the chirp to go unanswered. Didn't he have more important concerns? But in the end, he surrendered as he had known he would, picked up the phone, and clicked upon his open his email. A name from your past, read the subject line. Bob opened it. What he saw put him back in the chair. Old friend, you cannot imagine my delight at running across your name while doing some research on the Post website. Well, not just your name. There are a million Bob Carsons in the world, after all, but also your picture. That's what sealed it for me. Even after all these years, I'd have known you anywhere. I have always regretted the way it was left between us, the things I said to you so long ago in all my youthful self-righteousness and ideological purity. I thought of you often and wondered what became of you. These past few months, I have been working in minority outreach for Senator Obama. I am on a plane right now and will land in Chicago at 1030. I will be homeless for a few hours, unable to check into my room until this afternoon. I know this is criminally short notice, and I will understand if you can't do it, but if at all possible, might we have lunch today? I've missed you, Bob. I'd love to catch up with you. More than that, I'd simply love to see you again. Let me know. It was signed, Janika Lattimore. Janika Lattimore. He said it in a whisper, just to hear it being said, just to have the words on his tongue and the sound in his ear. All at once, Bob realized he had stopped breathing. He breathed. He was a trim and orderly man in wireframe glasses, pink scalp uh, peeking through the thin canopy of hair at the crown of his head. Once upon a time, back when his hair had fallen to below his shoulder blades, back when he was another man in another life, he had loved Janika Lattimore. Helplessly. That was how he had loved her. Completely. And she had broken his heart. No, that wasn't quite right. She had not broken his heart. She had broken him. She had left him lying in pieces on a dirt road in Mississippi, and for the longest time he had not known if or even cared if he could could put himself together again. And even when he finally managed to get on with it, even when he did manage to put the pieces back together into something that vaguely resembled Robert Matthew Carson, it had never quite been the same. He felt like a piece of china glued back together by a sixth grader. The pieces didn't quite fit. The break still was visible. Bob had never loved again never allowed himself to. There had been relationships, yes. He had even lived for a couple of years with a free-spirited painter in a crummy little apartment in Soho, and she had borne him a son he adored. But he had never married, much less immersed himself in a woman that way again. Now, he was 59 years old, and after all that time, here she was, blowing through town, blowing back into his life, and wanting to get together for lunch? Bob felt anger kindling in him at the nerve of her to show up uh, 40 years later as an email in his inbox, blithely inviting him to catch up on old times, as if what had happened had never happened, as if she had not told him they had no future because he was white and she was not, as if he, with an ice pack to his head and blood dripping off his chin, sitting in the back of that ambulance, had not begged her to stay, as if she had not turned away from him, literally turned away from him to be with her people. That's how she had put it in that self-consciously melodramatic way of college radicals of the 1960s for whom the revolution was a foregone conclusion. Her people. 
I thought I was your people too, he had said, his voice wounded and confused as the ambulance door closed on him. He had always wondered if she heard him and if she did, if she had, if she had answered. He didn't know. The door had closed like finality and he had never seen nor heard from her again. Then his phone had chirped and there she was inviting him to lunch. There was an absurdity to it that almost wrung a bitter laugh out of him. Almost. Bob glanced at his watch. It was a few minutes after six. He needed to hurry if he was going to make the meeting. He pressed a button and the screen on his cell phone went dark. But it was an effort just to get out of the chair. Janika Lattimore, he said, walking down the hallway to his bedroom. So that is a little bit of, um, of Grant Park. I'll, I'll close by saying this. Um, you know, people ask me, you know, what is the takeaway from this book? And the first takeaway for any novelist from any novel is I want you to be entertained and I want you to, you know, to find it a worthwhile story. But uh, other than that, I think the takeaway in terms of talking about a, a book about race in about 40 years is the realization that black, white, and otherwise in this country were stuck with each other. And I don't mean that in necessarily a negative sense, because I think that in being together, we bring so many different strengths and weaknesses to the table, so many gifts of culture and of art and of music and of perception and of ways of being in this world. But what I do mean is that, you know, we've had years, uh, you know, in, in African America, we've had a recurrent you know, theme or movement toward separatism or separation or, you know, we, we've just got to get, give us Texas, you know, and we'll just call it a day, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe, maybe California, you know, but, but give, us, give us a couple of states and we'll just call it a day or we'll go, you know, we'll, we'll board ships and go to Africa. That was Marcus Garvey's big movement. Uh, in white America, particularly in the last, you know, these years since the civil rights movement, there's also been a periodic thing of which you just shut up. Everything is wonderful now. Don't you? you got a black president. You got a black queen, Oprah, you know, life is, you know, life is good. Why don't you just shut up? And there's, you know, which fails to realize that people don't holler for no reason. If people are making noise, it's because people are in pain. You know, people do not make, you know, people do not, do not cry out, you know, when there's not something going on. So I think that what, 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 if anything comes out of this book for me, or if there's anything I want people to take away, it's the fact that, you know, Folks, folks who are in pain are not going to shut up, and we're also not going to go anywhere. So this is our country. We have the one country, and we have to find a way to live in it in peace and prosperity together. And I'll leave it there. I want to leave a few minutes for code. we have time for a couple of questions? Okay. All right. So I want to leave time for a few questions. And that's my, that's my spiel. That's, that's Grant Park. Are there any questions? Oh, come on. Not a one? Yes. Hi. I have a question, but it's not about the book. That's fine. Mm-hmm. that blacks face mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that they're also extremely patriotic. Thank you for noticing that. Can you explain that seeming There was a woman whose um, father, she, her, I think her father was a veteran of the First or Second World War, and she, she, this woman, when the national anthem was played, she refused to stand up and salute the flag, and her father did, and she was very angry. You know, why would you salute that flag? And she said her father told him, told her that he did not salute the flag because of the, what the country was. He saluted because of what the country could be. And I think that that's something that as African Americans we have always sort of striven toward. If you look, you know, Martin Luther King on the last day of his life said, be true to what you said on paper, talking about the country. And if you, if you, if you just look at what, you know, what was said on paper, there's nothing wrong. We're all good. If you just honor the contract, you know, we're all good. So I think African Americans have had a, you know, determination to make America live up to its founding documents. But you're right. You know, the patriotism of African Americans, it amazes me sometimes when I look at one of my, you know, most telling stories to me is of a, um, 
an uh, African-American soldier during the Second World War who wrote of uh, being at a train stop somewhere in, um, in Louisiana uh, and watching the uh, prisoners, the Nazi prisoners, go through the front door of a restaurant to be served while he had to go back to the back and eat in the kitchen. These are the people that are, are against everything the country stands for. These are people who have been trying to kill American boys, but they have greater rights than he does. So you're right. There, there is a, there's a, a strain of patriotism in, in the African-American character that seldom gets uh, noticed. I, not to ramble, but um, I, it's something that I really got upset about when um, I think it was um, John McCain's wife undertook to lecture Michelle Obama during the campaign about the need for patriotism. It's like, you don't get to do that. <laughs> you know, I understand your political debates, your political arguments or whatever, but you don't get to lecture on, on patriotism because, you, you know, in a very real sense, you don't know the meaning of the word. Who else? Got I just wanted to ask now. a yes. question. Um, you spent a lot of time talking about Memphis and mm-hmm. and describing, um, you know, the situation mm-hmm. there. And did you spend a lot of time there? Cause you, in Memphis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I, I did for this novel, but I also had the experience back in 2008, which was the, um, which is when this book is set, but it's also the 40th anniversary of the, um, the sanitation worker strike. I had the chance to go back and interview some of those men for a 40th anniversary piece. Uh, and that's what really started me thinking about this when I when I did the research. I mean, these guys, I don't want to, you know, make anybody sick, but the work these guys did for as little as 85 cents an hour, you know, and I'm sorry, you know, for those of you who, you know, I guess there aren't any real kids in here who may, think, may be thinking 85 cents an hour, you could probably buy a Cadillac for that money back then. No, <laughs> even then, 85 cents an hour, $1.20 an hour is not a whole lot of money. But for this money, these guys are working, you know, 14 hours, being paid for eight if they're lucky. Uh, and you know it wasn't um, it wasn't uh, you know sanitation workers these days. You put your trash out to the curb, and they come by in a truck and they pick up your trash. Back in those days in Memphis, there's a tub. You you have a tub of your garbage in your backyard, and you throw anything in there. You throw dead cats. You throw chicken bones. You throw whatever in there. And these men have to go and carry this like this. And they used to talk about how you know these are metal tubs. So after a while, they rust through, and whatever you're carrying is all over you. You know, and they're so filthy by the end of, by the end of a shift that uh, they couldn't. You know, they ride public try to, try to ride public transit. They couldn't ride public transit. They would have to walk home because they're so filthy. One of the things they wanted was just a place to take a shower. You know, so you know, uh, I that was you know that plays a, a theme in this in this book. Malcolm's father is a sanitation worker, as I think his column says. Uh, and there's also sort of this um, this this theme of estrangement between Malcolm and his father because his father is out there carrying the sign that says "I am a man." And Malcolm is out. Is Malcolm's response is let, let's burn something, let's let's break something, let's shoot something, which is you know very true to what the dichotomy of protest was back in this, in, the, in 1968. But the short answer to your question is, and I'm way too late, way too long for the short answer now. But the short answer to your question is that yeah, I spent a lot of time in Memphis. Anybody else? Yes. Is there anything we can do? to get the Baltimore Sun to run your excellent column on a regular basis rather than just occasionally. I thought they ran me twice. Do they, how often do they run me? Online. They don't, oh, they don't print it. You can, you can I, the, I have no magic bullet. You can call them and tell them, you know, I'd like to see this in the actual physical paper more often. Um, but, yeah, I mean, newspapers, you know, as, as resources shrink, they're having to make, you know, some really tough decisions about what goes in the physical newspaper and what goes online these days. And, you know, it's, it's not a pretty world. You know, but the best I can tell you is to contact the opinion page editor and let him know. And, and in the vein of is there anything we can do, 
to get Daniel Snyder to change the racist name of his football team. Down <laughs> stop you as, as I notice that you don't stop using it. That's you know that's one thing that I've I've made it a point of doing. On the rare occasions that I write about them, I call them the Washington racial slurs. You know, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm hoping that that'll that that'll that'll get picked up. You know, we'll see. Uh, I understand, you know, love of team. I'm not a huge sports fan, but, I, you know, I, I love myself some Lakers basketball. And if Lakers was, was offensive to whomever, some, you know, somewhere, some tribe or whatever, I know I'd, that would pain me sentimentally. But I also know that, you know, sentiment, you know, should not take precedence over just doing what's right by people. If you look at the world, seriously, if you look at the world in which that team was named, you know, you will have no difficulty understanding, you know, all of Daniel Snyder's excuses notwithstanding, you'll have no difficulty understanding the racism that was inherent. This is the era when they, when your store sold niggerhead soap and darky toothpaste. And I've never understood why, I mean, darky toothpaste? Why would you want something that's going to make it dark, you know? That seems, that's, I guess so. That just, that just seems like the opposite of, of, you know, what you want from toothpaste. But it was darky toothpaste and niggerhead soap and, and you know, all sorts of, um, you know, uh, uh, of advertising icons using Native Americans. So I can, you, you see the world that it came from, and it's not really hard to understand, you know, why it was what it was. Now, what they've had to do is sort of make up a new, you know, a new story for it. We do it to honor the Native Americans. You know, it's not so much. You know, not so much. Who else? I love a shy group. Are we done? Here we go. Um, well, you talked about um, the research that you did um, mm-hmm. in in Memphis. Can you speak about some of the other research that you had to do uh, in writing this book? Well, I, I spent some time in Memphis. Um, as I said, I was there, just happened to be there for the um, 40th anniversary of the garbage, uh, the sanitation worker strike. I also went back because there's a scene of a character having to break the curfew the night of the riot walking along the Mississippi River. So I actually went da- went down there to take that walk and just essentially just to drive around the city to make sure I understood what the geography of the town was. Then I also went to Chicago to do the same thing. Uh, I went to Chicago and did a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of the book that takes place in the Michigan Avenue area and, of course, Grant Park. So I did a lot of uh, driving around and, and, and riding around in that area. Uh, this was less of a research-heavy book than, say, Freeman because this book takes place within my lifetime. So it wasn't really that hard to know the language or to know, you know, what the stores looked like or what the what the world looked like in 1968 and definitely not in 2008. Um, you know, so it wasn't difficult in that in that regard. But, you know, you found yourself you find yourself, you know, trying to catch yourself with, you know, just because technology has changed so fast. You know, the, the tools that you give your readers to your, your characters to work with. I had to go back and realize, OK, in 2008, uh, they would have been using MySpace. You know, just something I haven't thought of in many years. Okay, MySpace. And the iPhone was new. So, you know, I, I make a point of, oh, look at this new phone I've got. So it's, it's little stuff like that that you've got to go and, you know, and try to make sure that you're, that you're true to the time on. But otherwise, this wasn't a real research-heavy book. Just looking at, uh, I did a lot of looking at maps of Memphis you know, in 1968 in addition to just walking the streets. Anybody else? I think it was with me in the womb. I told, yeah, I said that I was a writer when I was five, so I think that's God, not me. You know, I was, I, I always said that I was a writer. I said this from the time I was a little five-year-old kid, uh, and I started sending things out to newspapers when I was 12, and I got published when I was 14. So, yeah, so I, you know, this is this has always been me. What you see has always been me, you know. 
And you're right, it is, it is a bug. It's not a, <laughs> you put it exactly right, it's not a, oh boy, I want to. Uh, sometimes when people tell me, oh boy, I'd love to write, I tell them, don't, don't waste your time. Uh, it's, if it's not something that you have to do, then you're probably better off doing something else. We got a question over here. Yes. What can we do going forward mm-hmm. to make this work? You know, we know where we are. With we regard know what to the race, history is. with regard to race, there's 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 a couple things that I tell people. I mean, obviously, there's organizations that you can join. There's causes that you can lend your time, uh, talent, and treasure to. But one of the main things that I think is important uh, in this country is to understand and con- and admit to privilege. I think that that's very uh, important. I think it's something that people are unwilling to do often because I don't think they really understand what privilege is. So the way that I explain racial privilege to people is to explain, to tell them a story that illustrates gender privilege. And, you know, I hope maybe they get the, 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 the point. A few years ago, my wife um, you know, took our car into a tire shop, the National Tire and Battery, as a matter of fact, because um, you know we bought new tires and they were like a week old, and we had this giant bulge in one of the tires. And she takes the car in, and the guy is, could not have been more condescending. Would not put the car up on a rack. Would barely talk to her. Told her obviously, you know, she had done something to the tire. She had driven into a curb, et cetera, et cetera. She comes home to me. And I go back up there, and I'm intending really nothing more than just to, you know, get this guy straight. I can't get a word. I can't get a word out of my mouth before my car's up on the rack. Okay, the car's on the rack, and he's looking at it. And it's oh my goodness, this this is a rare defect. You don't see this very often, but yeah, we'll we'll have that fixed for you. I'll I'll get you a new tire. That's what he did. We'll we'll get you a new tire. We'll have you on your way in 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 a, in a moment. And I'm asking, is this is this the guy that was giving you all the trouble? Yes, it was. So okay, that's gender privilege. I have the priv- you know, I'm taken seriously when I walk into this place. Now, this does not mean that I am a sexist. I hope I'm not a sexist. I strive not to be a sexist. But I am the beneficiary of a sexist system. I am the beneficiary of a system that is tilted to the benefit of people like me. Okay? That's the same dynamic that is at work with, with, with uh, white privilege. The, you know, when I say, oh, you're, you have white privilege, I don't mean that you were born with a silver spoon. I don't mean that you're a racist. I mean that you're white in a country that is tilted toward white. Okay? And so, you know, if, if, if that, that situation was frustrating enough for my wife just because of what happened, if I had gone home and made excuses for the guy, oh, honey, I'm sure it was just your imagination, or he didn't treat me any differently than he would have treated you or any other woman, you know, it would have been doubly frustrating, I think, for her. She probably would have slapped me upside the head. Okay, or worse. And if you can understand why that would have been frustrating for her, then you can understand why it's frustrating for African Americans when white people say, "What well, privilege? What privilege? I, 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 got, I have no privilege. It's, you know, I, I just live my life. Okay? So that's why I think you know, it, it is very important at, at a minimum, if you can't give time, talent, or treasure, just to acknowledge that the privilege exists and don't let people within your circle away with claiming that they don't have privilege because they do. They absolutely do. You can't, you know, you can be a good person or a bad person. It's not a judgment on you personally, but you cannot be white in this country and not have white privilege. It is a physical impossibility. Does that help or is that? Okay. Anybody else? We got one right here. Can you talk about the difference between writing a column and writing a book? Well, um, in writing a column, you are restricted to... um, you know, about 650 words, and it's a you know pretty tight space, but you have to make it seem as though you're 
just sort of breezing along when, in fact, you're just sort of really clicking because you don't have a lot of space to, to fool around. Uh, and obviously you're, you're, you're hamstrung by whatever the facts of a given situation are. Uh, fiction is a whole different animal. Fiction is you've got a lot more space. As opposed to 650 words, you've got maybe 100,000 words. So you've got a lot of time to, to sort of develop your thoughts and your, and your, and your ideas. And it, the truth is what you say, you say it is. The facts are what you say they are. Okay. Even in this book, I played with the geography of Memphis and, and Chicago a little bit. You know, I moved a freeway around, and you know, just because I needed it over here, when in, when in reality it's over there. You know, so that you know, that's you know, part of it. I tell people that you know, one that they, in writing a column and writing fiction, you you're exercising different muscles, but you're also static, you're also scratching different itches. Uh, a column is um, you know is like dinner. And, you know, you, you have dinner, and you have dinner, and dinner is good, dinner is delicious, but dinner is also something that you have to eat for nutrition. If you don't, if you don't have dinner, you know, then something's out of whack. Dessert you don't have to have. Dessert is something by which you feed your soul, okay? So the column is, the column is dinner, you know, this is a chunk of chocolate cake, <laughs> okay? With ice cold milk, you know this is something I this is something I write not because I you know something I write to feed my soul as opposed to you know anything else. Does that help you? Okay. Who else? Right here. Can you tell us something about your creative process? How do you mean? In terms of deciding. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. In terms of deciding what. In terms of deciding what next you want to write about. Are we talking about the column? Are we talking about books or books? Books. Um, With a book, you have to, for me at least. Uh, the, the thing that comes first is the theme, even before the characters. I don't think in terms of plot uh, or even really characters, just sort of theme, you know, what is it I want to deal with? What is it I want to say? What's on my mind? And it has to be something that sort of gets with you and stays with you for a while, you know, something that, you know, you, you, you think about it for a minute and then you, you, you go away from it and then it comes back to you a week or two later or in, and, and you start imagining scenarios and the characters start to come to populate those scenarios and that's when you know you've got the beginnings of a book. Okay, this book started, you know, with my own frustration over the um, absurdity and incoherence of American r- political and particularly racial dialogue in 2008. I mean, present day, I should say. Um, my next book is a World War II novel and that, that happened just because I wanted an excuse to go play in, in the 1940s. You know, I'm fascinated by that era, you know, and I said, you know, let, let, let's see what we can do with, with, with that time frame. You know, so let's, let, let's, you know, so I spent a year, you know, listening to Andrew's sisters and Bing Crosby and people of that nature and reading the fiction and, you know, and looking at old movies and just sort of trying to immerse myself in that era just because, you know, it seemed like a cool thing to do. Anybody else? Yes. regarding other things that you want to do or write about creep in and how and if it does happen how how do you keep that out and continue on the road you're on writing the book you're if writing? another i mean other things come in in the sense that i'm writing columns and i'm doing essays and things so of that nature but but if another book is coming in that's that's probably a sign that i'm writing the wrong book okay. um, because you know books not, not so much the book but uh, a thought for just, you know, things out there that you You mean in terms of other things to write about? Right. Uh, I have not really had that problem. As I said, I've got, you know, I've got to write two columns a week, so that's always churning. 
you know, whenever I'm not on vacation, it's always churning, trying to come up with, 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 with something for that. But in terms of anything else, there's really nothing else really interferes. You, you, you know, when you write a book, you get to go play. You create a world, then you get to go play in it, you know, for uh, a thousand words a day, for, for two or three hours a day. You get to go play in this world. So it's actually something, you, for me at least, you look forward to. It's hard work, you know, but it's also fun because you get to go play with it. If you've created characters that you enjoy... And it doesn't mean they're good, they're good people, because, you know, some of my favorite characters are really bad people. But you get to go hang out with these, you know, with these characters that you've created and that, you've, that you enjoy bringing to life. And so I don't really have a, uh, a lot of problem with other things uh, interfering. You know, it's just sort of, you know, let's, let's go see what Clarence is going to do today. <laughs> you know, let's go see how Malcolm's going to get out of the trouble I left him in yesterday. That's, that's the kind of thing that that involves. Who else? Yes, sir. You're talking about a book? Yeah. Um, not really. A book is an act of faith, unless your name is Stephen King or John Grisham or somebody along those lines. You know, I mean, but if you're, if you're, if you're somebody like me, then, um, you know, what you're doing is, you know, I used to give it to my wife like 10 chapters at a time, but I've, I've stopped doing that. I didn't do that on this book. I'm not doing it on the one that I'm working on, uh, just so that she could see the whole thing. You know, at one at one shot, I used to give it to her when I was pretty sure, OK, I'm not going to be changing these chapters. But the thing about, you know, as a as a fiction writer, the thing about looking for feedback is that you're not so much looking for criticism or are these are these pages any good is you're looking for validation. OK, uh, because writing a novel, again, if you're not Stephen King or whomever, is a lonely, lonely process. If I write a column, uh, my deadline is tomorrow. I'll write a column. It'll appear Wednesday. You know, people will start calling me a genius or an idiot on Wednesday. You know, and I'll, and I'll get all that feedback. The feedback will start Wednesday, and it'll carry through. The novel that I'm writing now, I mean, all the tear-jerking scenes and the horrifying scenes and, oh, isn't that real funny? No, I've re- I, you know, I'm writing jokes that, no, that people aren't going to laugh at until 2017, 2018. You know, tear-jerking scenes that people aren't going to cry over for two or three years. And that's really difficult. You know, that, that, that's, so that's why you say, well, here, why don't you have a look at the preview? You know, but you, I, I think that you really have to, to um, resist that. You know, when the, project, when the project is finished and you're pretty sure you've got a draft that you're proud of, then you can show it to some people and get a, get a few pats on the back. But I think that other than that, you're basically looking for validation and probably just getting in the way of, of the work. You've got to have the, the discipline and the hard-headedness to just stick there and write the darn thing without the feedback, without, even, without knowing if it's any good, without knowing if anybody's going to buy it. You know, but you've got to write it because, okay, I've got to write this. You know, and if it's something that you've got to write, then you're, then you're going to sit there and do it. But, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I know exactly where that comes from, but I've, I've, just, I've started resisting that. Yes? Let's make this the last question. Last question. Okay. Shoot. Last question. It has to be a good one. Okay. That's right. It has, has to be brilliant. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Um, is there ever a conflict for you mm-hmm. with promotion of your old work mm-hmm. and writing your new work? Not really. Where you want to sit in and say, I, I'm, you know, at na- now I want to move to something else because I've already written that, and then you have to go out and promote. You have to go out and talk about the, yes. the other characters? Yeah. It, it, yeah, no. I mean, this is the first, you know, I'm in the first week of promoting this book, so it's all kind of, it's all kind of fresh. Uh, you know, but um, the, the, the only con- conflict is a very pragmatic one. You know, I've still got about eight pages to go on the next book. You know, so I need to find time to just hammer those out real quick. I would have been done before this, but the computer ate like, I mean, my iPad ate two days of work. Yeah, I hate that too. The iPad ate a couple of days of work because my plan had been to be done and then go on tour. So there's that sort of thing. You know, I'm talking about 
um, you know, Clarence and Malcolm and Bob, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm loving that, but half my mind is with Thelma and George <laughs> and Luther, you know. So there's that, there's that kind of schism, but it's not really a difficult thing. So, okay. Do you think a lot of people are going to ask you the question um, about... I bet I know what it is. Go ahead. <laughs> I know. I really didn't want to ask it, but um, ask if you uh, identify with Malcolm and, and do you feel like this? I identify with Malcolm and his frustration uh, and that email that he receives from, quote-unquote, Joe McPherson is cobbled together from a thousand emails that I've received over the years. I mean, every, every line in that email is true. You know, every line is something that I've seen. Uh, but, you know, the thing that Malcolm forgets, that Malcolm does what he's complained about white people doing to him, is that he, sees, he begins to see only a monolith and not to see the individuality and, and see the, you know, the good people, bad people, people who are somewhere in between. Uh, and I've never really, you know, I've not had that problem. You know, I've not had that, you know, that, that difficulty. Uh, I'm always afraid, you know, that, you know, I don't want to become like the people that I, like Joe McPherson. You know, I think that, that racism and, frankly, all the isms are, are lazy thinking. You know, the idea that instead of talking to you and taking the time to get to know you, I can look at your color or I can look at your, you know, some other external, you know, facet and know everything I need to know about you. That's lazy, you know, that, that's, that, if, if it's nothing else, it's hateful and this, that, and the other, but it's also damn lazy, you know, so I never want to be that guy. So, you know, I've, I've not had Malcolm's problem, but I've shared Malcolm's frustration, you know, very much. And, and frankly, I think every opinion writer, and particularly every African-American opinion writer, would tell you the same thing. On that note, we'll say thank you again. You're welcome. Leonard Pitt. Should I sit here? <laughs>